last time we figured yeah, it was 90 some dollars or something yeah. like that, I think. Okay. Well, I ask uh, that you remember that, um, and that uh, we are using uh, these materials for the glory of God, and, and uh, His church, as far as possible, is to be without debt. Amen. And so uh, uh, let's remember to return to the Lord a, a faithful and, and an honest tithe as well as offerings that are called for. Um, at this time, I want to invite you to kneel with me if it's possible for you to do so. And let's have a word of prayer together before we get into uh, our study here. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we come before you praising you for who and what you are and your love towards us and the, the manifold blessings that you pour out upon us. So many that, uh, that we sadly don't recognize. Uh, but uh, Lord, we thank you that you take care of us in such uh, wonderful ways. You see things that we don't and you take care of those things. Uh, once we get to heaven and and see the books, we'll be able to understand all those times uh, where you have protected us, where you have taken care of our needs. And we want to praise you right now for all of that. We praise you for the Holy Sabbath day. that We have a day that we can come together and, and with like-minded believers and come worship you in spirit and in truth. And, and to gain the, the blessings of a taste of heaven that encourages us, Lord, uh, in, for the days ahead. And it gives us hope that someday we will see Jesus face to face and uh, be with Him forever. And uh, Lord, we thank You so much uh, that we can look back and see that You are our Creator God. That You created uh, a beautiful world and that sin has marred it. It gives us a hope too that, and a realization that You can recreate our hearts and remove sin from us. And we're in that time. We can aid Jesus in His ministry in heaven, blotting out our sins. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us, upon all your people, to aid in that work, and to reach souls for the kingdom, to prepare ourselves and prepare others to meet Jesus when He does come again. We lift up those on our prayer lists. We pray that you be very near to them. Be with Susan. She's... Uh, got this flu or bug, Lord, as she was helping others who were ill. We pray that you will be with um, the Jerry's children. Uh, they're going through a hard time, Lord, and many people are suffering uh, as we get closer and closer to the end. And may we be a blessing to them in some way. And Lord, give me the words to speak uh, this morning. Uh, give me the thoughts you wish conveyed as we, we talk about... Uh, some of the basics of the gospel and conversion, the story of Jesus. I pray that you will bless it and bless those who see and hear as I bring the word to them. I ask this favor in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen. Testing, one, two, one, two. I'm hearing that we're having some difficulties with the broadcast. We're good. Praise God. There's always a reason to praise God for, isn't there? I have entitled this, uh, this particular message, this study, uh, Return to Him. 
and that him is God. Return to him. Uh, friends, we can look around and we can see that time is quickly coming to a close. Can we not? As Christians who understand prophecy. In fact, I'll tell you that there are not many prophecies in the Bible that are left to be fulfilled. And I want to ask you, in consideration of that, how is your spiritual health? Are you vibrant? Are you alive in Christ? Or are you weary and, and broken, maybe, and, and weak? You know, we see sin uh, seems like it's uh, all around us and it's increasing and increasing, this evil tide. And we can become discouraged um, maybe more quickly than we used to. Is that true for anyone? I'll tell you it's true for me. And uh, um, I want to... Uh, to have that strength that comes from the Lord. I want to have uh, that rest that comes from Jesus. And this is what the Sabbath helps us with too, isn't it? But have you given up in your walk to the kingdom or are you staggering uh, slowly ahead? We talk about today here, I want you to consider, um, as you should, each one of us should, uh, our walk, our faith our relationship with God. As we look at it, we're coming into a new year in this country, aren't we? And uh, often this time of year, or at the end of December, we look back at the, the year that we've just come through, and we contemplate it. And so, how was our spiritual walk last year? Is it going to be different this year? Are you falling away from God into the hands of the Antichrist power prophesied by Paul and John? It's a serious question, isn't it? In speaking of the Antichrist, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 3, he said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, and now he's speaking about Jesus' return, he says, that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. You see, at the time that Paul was writing this to the church there in, uh, at Thessalonica, there was the thought that Jesus was returning very quickly. And so love and duty waned just a, a bit because after all, Jesus was coming back at any moment. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 is what I read. And so, you know, the, there was this kind of a, an attitude that raised up that, well, Jesus is coming any time now. We can just kind of occupy. Have you heard that before? We just kind of occupy because he's coming back so soon that, you know, we don't need to really do anything. But Paul was correcting this error uh, it was an error in judgment, really, uh, by warning that there would be a falling away. There would be an apostasy in the church so that that man of sin would be revealed and uh, then Jesus would return. And so, and looking back at the last year and looking back at my walk and seeing you know, the, the flock and in all this consideration of uh, the, the church, uh, and what we see going on around us, my great concern in our time, friends, is for those who are actually fulfilling these words right now in many ways and falling away from what they know to be the truth and their duty to God and, and to man and to each other.
for those who are being beaten down. That's my concern. My concern for them. They're being beaten down by Satan's lies and deceptions to choose error over truth. My concern is for those who are so eat up with guilt that they believe that there's no hope for forgiveness. There's no hope that they can return to God who can keep you from falling, the Bible tells us. That's my great concern. And uh, we're, we're not in for good times ahead, friends. Oh, you may have ministers that preach peace, peace. But we're not headed for peace. We're in a great conflict between God and Satan. And it's going to come to a head. And it's going to come to a head in our lifetime. Have you realized that yet? In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that they have lost their first love. This love that is spoken of here included a wholehearted love for God and His truth, love for one another as brethren and for their fellow man in general. This is what He, he was saying. We find it in Revelation 2. Let's begin with verse 1. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Who's being spoken of here? That's Jesus, isn't it? He holds the seven stars. He's the one who uh, uh, spreads the gospel through his ministers. These stars are often referred to as ministers of the gospel. He holds them in his right hand. That's a comfort to those who are out there spreading the gospel. Jesus holds you in His right hand. And He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Those are often referred to as the churches. So Jesus is intimate with His church. Remember, the definition of the church is wherever Jesus is, there is His church. So Jesus is walking through the churches here. He has control. Let's say He has an invested interest in it. Doesn't He? Mm -hmm. Verse 2 says, I know thy works. How does he know the works? Because he's been walking through the churches. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Sounds like they were doing pretty good, doesn't it? They were standing up for what the truth was. They were testing everything. Doesn't it sound pretty good? Pretty good report from the Lord. I mean, he's walking through there and he, the churches and he sees this. But then he says in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Now, perhaps the doctrinal controversy stirred up by these false teachers at that time had given rise to a, a spirit of dissension, maybe. And in spite of diligent efforts on the part of many to stand against the, the tide of all these false teachings, a number who remained in the church were no doubt affected in greater or less degree by it. How can you not be? You know, throughout Adventism, the, the churches are so spread out, and I'm talking about the church, okay? So we've been studying who and what the church is. We're so spread out 
that there uh, uh, isn't a, a we're, we're not organized in gospel order enough to take care of these false teachings that may arise. And so you have all these heretical doctrines and these winds of doctrines that are going throughout the churches. And so here, you know, it's being spoken of here as well. They found that in some respects here, Jesus had found that a lodging place in the hearts of believers for error. And when that happens, it thwarts the Holy Spirit. And His task is to transform our character. And so it hinders that work. See? When we hold on to some error. And I'll tell you here, in reading through this and studying, that history is being repeated all over the world right here in our churches. God's people, like I said, are so scattered right now, it becomes easy, all too easy, for the enemy to sow seeds of error and discouragement. And many leave spiritually from our congregations, if not physically. And that can be worse. Because if you have left spiritually, you become a tool of the enemy, actually. Many are losing their first love, just as Jesus said here. What is the remedy, then, for such a condition? The Holy Spirit has brought it to your mind, and you have recognized, you know, my path was going upward, but some things happened, and I've changed course. I want my first love again. If you've come to that point, what's the remedy? How does that happen? Jesus says in the very next verse, Revelation 2 and verse 5, He gives an indication of it. He says, what's that first word there? Remember. Remember. Isn't that what the fourth commandment begins with? Remember. Think back. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. And repent. Consider your sins. Look back. Where did I fall? What has caused me to go off course? <gasps> there it is. Come to the Lord and repent. And then he says, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. So as the Holy Spirit goes throughout the churches, those, the candlestick the Holy Spirit will be grieved away from us if we continue in sin. But Jesus says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. And then He said what? Do the first works. What are the first works that He's speaking of here? Well, the previous verses, verses 2 and 3, laid them out. He said, Don't endure evil teachings and practices in the church. Deal with them in the church and remove them. How does the church go into apostasy? Because it doesn't deal with these evil teachings and practices. That's why we see in many of the churches today this Laodicean condition. Lukewarmness. Sometimes hot, sometimes cold. Jesus saying to us, we need to deal with it. He says, study the word and test the messages brought by ministers and leaders and reject them if false. 
Don't just say, oh, well, yeah, he was a little off on that one. You've got to deal with it. You have to react to it. You can't just wash your hands of it and say, oh, God will take care of that. And when God removes all these tears out of the church, it's all going to be glorious. You need to understand what that parable is all about. Because if you have a minister standing in the pulpit that's leading you in error, he's leading you to hell. You have to deal with it. This is what Jesus is saying their first works were. He said, endure patiently the unavoidable affliction caused by the false ministers. Or I like to refer to them as hirelings in wolves in sheep's clothing, as the Bible says. You have to endure. Some people get caught up in it. And even though you may deal with it, there are, there's fallout. There's fallout. And we have to be patient. We had fallout from such things in our church in Lafayette. We're still patiently dealing with that, though it's been years. <coughs> then he said, he says, labor. This is part of the first works. He says, labor for the lost without fainting or becoming tired or burnt out. Boy, it's easy to get burnt out, isn't it? It's like... There's so much work to reaching lost souls that you don't know where to begin. The key, friend, is to begin. Don't just give up. Jesus didn't give up for us, did He? And so this was their first works that they did there in the name of Jesus. And this they lost. But you know what's encouraging is Jesus says it's possible to return to them. Well, how is this possible? How can we return to our first works? Well, who is it that motivated those works? Was it not Jesus? So we must look up to Jesus. We must believe that He loves us. We must look up again to Jesus. We must believe that He keeps His promises and He'll forgive us. Do you believe that Jesus will forgive you? Jesus keeps His Word, doesn't He? We must remember from whence we are fallen and return to Him. He's calling us to return to Him. And so, we have to be recharged by the Holy Spirit to get back up to hit against the world again and again, against these false doctrines, false teachers, sin in the church, sin in our life. Walking in faith, not by sight. Never give up in the fight of faith, for Jesus didn't give up on you. And He has provided all we need to be victorious. To be victorious against the devil and accomplish those first works which really, friends, are the works of His hands, not ours. How do we return to Him? You know, Luke chapter 15 tells the story about two sons and their attitudes and character. And I've found in my experience that too often uh, we resemble them both at different given times. <laughs> we know this as the story of the prodigal son. 
The son takes his inheritance, you'll recall. And, and he leaves his father to live his own life. And he eventually finds himself partnering with the world and, and living in sin and, and having a, a righteous life. Not righteous, riotous, I said. And when his money runs out, what happens? So does his accomplices. And then he's left to his own demise, isn't he? If we go to Luke 15, verse 17, we read about what happens after that. Here he is, he's in, he's in with the pigs. Eating the slop of pigs. Can it get any worse, really? I guess, I don't know. Think about that one. So if you think that you're in a worse situation... Friends, God can reach us wherever we are. But look at verse 17. It says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I'll say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. What a confession. So make me as one of thy hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran. You know, this reminds me of when Adam and Eve fell. God came looking for them. <laughs> God came to them. And here we see that the father runs to his son. He doesn't wait for him to come up to the house. He's overjoyed to see his son come home. It says, and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Verse 21, And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and in no more worthy to be called thy son. So he had practiced this repentance, this confession, probably all the way home. And I'm going to hope that my father forgives me and makes me one of his servants because at least I'll be able to eat. <laughs> How's the father react to this? He hugs him. He kisses him. And he doesn't let him finish what he's saying. Because <laughs> you look back, you see exactly how, what he had rehearsed. He doesn't even get that finished. And the father says to the servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Get these clothes off of him. He's my son. Put, he put a ring on his hand. He has an inheritance still. And shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. That was for great celebrations that they did that. And let us eat and be merry. Why this reaction from the father? He had a deep love for his son. But it tells us in verse 24, 
For this my son was dead. When he left and took everything, I didn't think I'd ever see him again. You think that father ever went a day without praying for his son to come home? He was dead. The grieving in the father's heart. And then he sees him. He's alive. He's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. In the very end of verse 24, and they began to be merry. Incredible story. Spend hours studying this and, and seeing insights into it. But what was it that the son did? I want you to notice what the son did after he had sinned, after he had lost his inheritance and his friends forsook him and he was starving to death, wallowing with the pigs. What was the first thing? It said there in verse 17, it says, He came to himself. What's that mean? He came to himself. It means the, the emotions, the passions were not in control anymore. Reason assumed the throne of his heart and mind and he began to consider what he'd been doing. He confessed and repented in his heart. Oh, what have I done? Then what did he do? It says... There in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. He arose. So it wasn't just thoughts in his mind where he came to himself. He put those that reason into action, didn't he? He arose. He acted without delay to confess and repent of his sins and head back. That's the next thing he did. He returned to his father. And not only did he receive forgiveness, but also he received an inheritance again. He was looked at as a member of the family. Not a servant. Now something else that you will notice about the father's reaction to his son's return, and this doesn't get mentioned very often, I, at least I've never heard there was no taunting. There was no mention to the prodigal of his evil course and his foolish decisions. Did you see that? The son feels then, see, that the past is forgiven. It's forgotten. It's blotted out forever. And so God says to the sinner, He says to all of us in Isaiah 44, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Isaiah 44 and verse 22. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's not always hanging over our head. Now it's in the books until it can be removed out of the books. And that's where we're at in time right now. And our scripture reading for today, Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy. It doesn't say he might have mercy upon him. 
It says He will have mercy upon him. And He says, return to our God and He will abundantly pardon. Sometimes I think how little man comprehends the, the boundless mercies and goodness of God and of His infinite purpose for every person saved by divine grace. Too often man's thoughts are tinged with bitterness, estrangement. Yet, God's are always of tender mercy and forgiving grace. And He doesn't just pardon. Do you notice that? It says He abundantly pardons every confessed sin, no matter how many. My little brother said to me one time, I've done too many bad things for God to forgive me. What a terrible, what a terrible situation to feel yourself to be in. That you've done too many bad things for God to forgive you. The Bible tells us that God will abundantly pardon. From the book Desire of Ages, page 280. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Quoting Psalms 51, 17 there. And she says, man must be emptied of self before he can be, in the fullest sense, a believer in Jesus. We have to be emptied of self. And this is what happened to the prodigal. He came to the realization of what self leads you to. Not only does it lead you to squalor and wallowing with the pigs and starving, it leads you to death, an eternal death. So we have to be emptied of self before we can be, as she says, in the fullest sense, a believer in Jesus. When self is renounced, then the Lord can make man a new creature. New bottles can contain the new wine. The love of Christ will animate the believer with new life. In Him who looks unto the author and finisher of our faith, the character of Christ will be manifest. Not might be manifest. Will be manifest. Now friends, I'll ask you, as you remember, as you look back, are you a prodigal? Have you lost your first love? Have you awakened to your plight and come to yourself? Have you considered what you're doing? Will you return to your first love? Will you return to Him? And I will tell you by experience that you can trust Jesus to forgive you. For I have found that He keeps His promises. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Oh, is He long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, it says, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto His people Israel, 
according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. God keeps his promises. Now, when it comes to salvation, God keeps his promises. First John 2 and verse 25 says, And this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that by having faith in Jesus and believing in Jesus and committing yourself, that's what belief means, committing yourself to Jesus, you will have eternal life? Do you know that when you do that right now, that your eternal life begins right now? And only you can change it. How does that happen? Well, the prodigal repented. Matthew 3 and verse 2 says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is the kingdom of heaven at hand today? Yes, yes it is. From the book Courage and Conflict, page 145. There is need today of such a revival of true heart religion as was experienced by ancient Israel. Repentance is the first step that must be taken by all who would return to God. No one can do this work for another. We must individually humble our souls before God and put away our idols. When we have done all that we can do, the Lord will manifest to us His salvation. He leads us to repentance, but there's an action that has to take place. What does repentance mean? It literally means to feel a godly sorrow for the wrongs that you've committed. A person first has to know they have sinned in order to come to repentance. Isn't that true? And that is what the law of God brings into view. From the book The Faith I Live By, page 326, it is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival of primitive faith and godliness among His professed people. Did you catch that? It is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival. Let me ask you, when is the last time you've seriously compared the Ten Commandments to your lifestyle? Can you close that? Blind? I'm getting reflections that are blinding me. Thank you. You know... We're Sabbath keepers here, and I found that there are many Sabbath keepers that concentrate on the fourth commandment to the exclusivity of the other nine. Well, I want to take a look at the law of God with you. I want to take a look at it. And I want you to remember your first love. Remember the first works. Remember where thou art fallen. Okay? As we go through this. Because... The law of God is a mirror, Paul says, that reflects the character of Christ. And isn't that our goal? To be more like Jesus? That's God's goal for us, to be more like Him. So let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 2, begin with that. I'm going to <clears throat> move a little bit more quickly here. We are familiar with the Ten Commandments, are we not? Who's familiar with the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. 
Well, that's unanimous. So I can move pretty well here. Right? You don't understand these. Maybe I could just skip it. No, take your time. No? <laughs> okay. Exodus 20, verse 2. We need to remember. We need to remember. Exactly. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. Literally, that means before my face. You're not to have any other gods before my face. Or it's often expressed as besides me. Or in addition to me. Or in opposition to me. You can kind of use any of those. And being the only true God, the Lord requires that He alone be worshipped. I mean, that's kind of logical and makes sense, doesn't it? He is the only God. All others are idols. Verse 4. He says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Well, what makes up an idol? Is it just a piece of wood or, you know, that's formed in the fashion of a beast that's under the earth or in the heavens? Or can it be something that we, can it be a habit? Can a habit be an idol? So it's more than just an object, isn't it? So as the first commandment emphasizes the fact that there is but one God, in protest against the worship of many gods, this second commandment places emphasis upon His spiritual nature in disapproval of, like I said, idolatry and, and uh, materialism. Well, i got to have that fancy red Maserati sports car so everybody can look at me. And I'm going to spend all my time waxing it up and having it cleaned up. and Yeah, wax on, wax off. That has become an idol. You have something that replaces God in your heart. That has become your idol. God refuses to share His glory with idols. That's why He says, I'm a jealous God. He declines the worship and service of a divided heart. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. It's either one or the other. Verse 7, Exodus 20. The third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Those who serve the true God in spirit and in truth will avoid, friends, careless, uh, irreverent, or unnecessary use of God's name. For one thing. That's not the only thing this is talking about. They're not going to indulge in profanity either. It also condemns empty ceremony and formality in worship. but it exalts worship in the true spirit of holiness. It shows that obedience to the letter of the law is not sufficient either. So, you know, 
I come and come to church on the Sabbath day because the next commandment we get into tells me to. But I'm really not keeping it in heart. It's more of a ritual and a duty. To those that are in that kind of a condition, are they really Sabbath keepers? Or are they really just Saturday keepers? You know, when you think about it back in history, no one ever reverenced the name of God more strictly than the Jews did, who even to this day will not utter it if they even know how it's pronounced because the result is no one knows how it should be pronounced. But in their extreme devotion to the letter of the law, the Jews offered God an empty honor, didn't they? It's like those who come to church on the Sabbath, but they... They break all the other nine commandments through the week. They're just Saturday keepers then. See? And this false zeal by the Jews didn't prevent that tragic mistake that they made over 2,000 years ago when they put the Savior to death. And that third commandment also forbids false swearing or perjury. And a careless use of God's name denotes a lack of reverence for Him. And it tells somebody a little bit more about yourself, doesn't it? Oh, you may call yourself a Christian, but you go around saying GD when you're at work. You begin to wonder, don't you? You know what I mean by GD, don't you? Because I'm not going to say it. Not good day. Far from it. So if we're thinking on a spiritually elevated plane... um, our words will also be elevated and, and will be dictated by what is honest and sincere. Follow the sound. <laughs> trying to find your, Yeah, you find it and they hang up. That's the way it usually goes. Uh, the fourth commandment, verse 8. What's that first word? Remember. That's what we're doing, isn't it? Remember. I hope you're remembering. Remember the Sabbath day to do what? Keep it holy. holy. I did a two-part television series on that. Keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day... What day? day? The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work... Thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, covering quite a lot, isn't it? Nor thy cattle, nor thy, notice the word thy there, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. So you have somebody comes over to visit you and stays over for you know, the weekend and they get up on the Sabbath day and they go out and start weeding the garden, you better take care of that. Make sense? Because you're a house that keeps the Sabbath. You can do that in a number of ways. But I'll say, I appreciate that, but Sabbath, it's a day for us to rest. Let's go help somebody out in need. Or however way you want to do it. That's righteous. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And what? Hallowed it. He made it sacred. It's the only day He made sacred that is to be 
a day of rest and fellowship with Him. It's our weekly anniversary date with God, friends. And, I mean, there's so much that can be said about this promise, this fourth commandment. It reminds us that the seventh day Sabbath is God's appointed rest for man. It goes back to the very beginning of time, doesn't it? very beginning, I should say, of human history. It's an inseparable part of creation week. Although you have some, even Adventists, saying, oh no, that wasn't literal days. <laughs> Remarkable. We need to remember whence we have fallen and repent, as Jesus said. It's a reminder as well in our personal walk that we're not to forget God. That's why it's a weekly anniversary day. Because we tend to forget a lot of things, don't we? Somebody will ask me, well, what did you have for lunch yesterday? Oh, geez, let me think. Um, you know? To enter fully into the spirit of the Sabbath is to find aid in obeying the rest of the commandments. And we should remember as well that mere rest from physical labor doesn't constitute Sabbath observance. That's part of it. I know some people that go to church and they go home and lay down and that's all they do the rest of the day. And Now on occasion that may be necessary. It may be circumstance. I'm not condemning that per se. But that's not the purpose of the Sabbath. Of Sabbath observance. The Sabbath was never intended as a day of idleness or inactivity. Sabbath keeping is not so much a matter of refraining from certain forms of activity as it is of enter entering into uh, uh, holy activities, see, that you won't do on any other day. That you could do on any other day, but you do it specifically on this day because God is with you. You can spend time helping others. Witnessing the person who enters into the true spirit of Sabbath observance will qualify also, we studied this just not too long ago, receiving the seal of God, which is his recognition that his character is reflect, reflected perfectly in your life. <coughs> and we could study that out for a long time too. What I've come to understand and realize is that the Sabbath is, is a day where I can come together with like believers and I actually gain a taste of heaven of what it's going to be like. I don't have to battle against temptations because I'm with people who don't want to sin. <laughs> I'm with people who look forward to that day that Jesus comes and want to be with Him forever. It's a taste of heaven this day is. Okay, those are the first four commandments and we'll find that they deal primarily with our relationship with God. And the, these next six deal with our relationship with each other as human beings. Verse 12, fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. <coughs> Parents stand to their children as the representatives of God. And it is fitting I believe that our first duty towards humanity should be to them. Now, this is the ideal. I know that there are single-parent homes in certain situations, but this is the ideal. And if you don't have a father here, you have one in heaven, friends. This commandment also engenders respect for all rightful authority. 
as such respect actually begins with the attitude of children towards their parents. There is included in the spirit of this commandment the thought that those in authority in the home and outside of it should so conduct themselves that they are ever worthy of the respect and obedience of those that are under them. And friends, this is Christ-likeness. Exodus 20, verse 12. Now I'm moving to Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. It's better rendered, thou shalt not murder. Okay? And in consideration of humanity, I'm speaking about humanity, we must respect and honor life for all life is sacred. Jesus died for that person. It's... It's of supreme value to him. This includes not just the physical life, but the spiritual life as well, friends. We can lead others to eternal ruin by our influence and our example, can we not? We can murder them with our thoughts and words just as well as we can with our hands. The seventh commandment, verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This prohibition covers not only adultery, but fornication and impurity of any and every kind, in act, in word, and in thought. And to respect and honor the bond upon which the family is built, that of the marriage relationship is to the Christian as precious as life itself, or it should be. I know we live in a world that is the family unit is constantly under attack, and that's because it is a microcosm of God's government. And the devil is always trying to, to destroy what is God's or make it appear in a, outside its true character. That's why you see this push for same-sex marriages and all this. They think it's, it's, a, it's love when it's not love. It's sin. It's the opposite, really, of love. It's the wrong kind of love, maybe is what I should say. Thou shalt not commit adultery, the Lord says. Verse 15. This is the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. And this is a very interesting one. People kind of gloss it over sometimes. Well, that's obvious. Thou shalt not steal. But here the right to possess property is set forth. This is a right that's to be respected by others. We possess a property. See? We have that right. It's right here. Thou shalt not steal. It means we have some property. And friends, for society to exist at all, this principle must be safeguarded or else there is no security and there's no protection for anyone. I told my daughter the other day, there are rules and the rules are set up to protect us. That's what they're really for. you didn't have laws, you didn't have this law of God, any laws, it'd be anarchy. Everyone for themselves. And that's what the devil wants. The devil wants it to be everyone for himself, but everybody to worship him. He's the supreme hypocrite, isn't he? This commandment forbids any act by which directly or indirectly we dishonestly obtain the goods of another person. You'll find this principle, my friends, contained in the Bill of Rights of the United States. Is it any wonder that the enemy of souls attacks the freedoms espoused in the law of our land in this country, the United States? They're based on Christian principles. Verse 16, ninth commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. 
This commandment may be transgressed in a public manner by untruthful witness in, let's say, a court of law or secret whisperings and innuendos. But uh, in a court of law, it's called perjury if you bear false witness. And it has, it's been considered a serious offense against society for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's been punished in various ways. You know, in Athens, a false witness was heavily fined. If convicted three times of this crime, he lost his civil rights. In Rome, a, a law of the Twelve Tables sentenced the transgressor to be hurled headlong from the Tarpapian, uh, excuse me, Tarpian rock. In Egypt, you know what the penalty was? Amputation of the nose and the ears if you committed perjury. And even in some of the, you go under the Sharia law and they'll cut your hand off for stealing something. You know, they, they hold to some of these things, these punishments. But you know, when you have a president who can stand up and, and uh, try to tell people in the world, I did not have sex with that woman. And people say, oh yeah, okay, it's not about character. Eh, it's okay to lie every once in a while. That has an effect on society. When you have the ruler of the land who, who gets away with breaking the commandments, does it not have an effect on everyone else? We see the effects of it today in children today. Well, if the president didn't realize that's not really sex, then I can do that. He was bearing false witness. This commandment is frequently violated by speaking Ill, evil of another uh, person whereby you defame their character or you, you, you misrepresent their motives. We're not to question people's motives because we can't read the heart, friends. Uh, or you depreciate their reputation. And this commandment may also be broken by those who remain silent when they hear an innocent person unjustly maligned. It can be broken by a shrug of the shoulder or by an, arc, an arcing of the eyebrows. You know, that's body language, isn't it? Whoever tampers in any way with the exact truth in order to gain personal advantage or for any other purpose is guilty of bearing false witness. These are just some of the things I want you to consider, friends, when you're remembering your walk in the last year or your history. This is what the law is to do. It's to bring us face to face with the character of Christ and know that we need a Savior. Tenth commandment. Actually encapsulates all the others. Verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And I'll tell you that this prohibition is fundamental to human experience and that it penetrates to the motive behind the outward act. It teaches us that God sees the heart and is concerned really less with the outward act than with the thought from which the action sprung. It establishes the principle that the very thoughts of our hearts come under the jurisdiction of God's law that we are as responsible for them as for our actions. You see, a wrong thought entertained promotes a wrong desire. 
which in time gives birth to a wrong action. A man may refrain from adultery because of the social and civil penalties that follow such transgressions, yet in heaven's sight he may be as guilty as if he actually committed the deed. Doesn't that make sense? This basic commandment reveals the profound truth that we are not the helpless slaves of our natural desires and passions. Do you realize that? You see, because within us is a force that's called the will, which under the control of Christ can control every unlawful desire and passion. It sums up the Decalogue, really, by affirming that man is essentially a free moral agent. Have you ever thought of it that way? And so, beloved, when you study the Ten Commandments, and I tried briefly, really, to go through them there, but we need to remember them, we need to consider them, we need to study them, because it's the character of Jesus reflected in them. So when you study them and you compare them to your life, what picture do you see? There's a favorite a quote of mine from The Desire of Ages. It's found on page 827. And it says, Christ is sitting for His portrait in every disciple. And I just love that. Christ is sitting for His portrait in every disciple. It's a beautiful statement. And so I ask you, do you see Jesus sitting for His portrait in your life? Do you want Him to? Return to Him. He's calling you to come back home. He gives the invitation in Matthew 11 and verse 28. He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says to come, just as you are, and He will receive you. He will forgive. He will forget. He will restore you unto His character traits. And you will find rest as your guilt is removed and you will you return to Him. You'll do your first works. Which again, as I said, are the works of His hands. For we know, friends, what brings guilt? Breaking of the law, doesn't it? First John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. When you break God's law, you have sinned. Guilt has come in. And you're guilty. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. You see, our carnal nature has a bad habit of trying to convince itself that it isn't guilty of breaking any commandments. And I know we've all experienced that. You see, it reasons that there were certain circumstances involved that were unexpected, and thus there is an excuse for our disobedience, and so God winks at our mistake. Here's something that I've learned about the carnal nature, and you tell me if it isn't true. The ends always justify the means with the carnal heart. Isn't that true? The carnal nature will always say that it was disobedient for all the right reasons. See? That, isn't that true? The ends justify the means. And I'll tell you, beloved, that whenever you see the ends justifies the means mentality, you can rest assured that the carnal heart is in charge. 
because there is no excuse for sin. <gasps> Did you hear what I just said? There is no excuse for sin. Now, you may have been ignorant of the law of God in some respect and didn't know uh, that what you were doing was breaking it, and so God may wink at your sin, but don't think that that is the norm. Sin is the transgression of God's law, and when you compare your life to that law, what do you see? The ninth commandment says we're not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Well, I'll tell you that that includes us as well, doesn't it? We're not to bear false witness against ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves and see ourselves for who we really are if we really want change. From the book Steps to Christ, page 35, deal truly with your own soul. Be as earnest, as persistent as you would be if your mortal life were at stake. This is a matter to be settled between God and your own soul, settled for eternity. A supposed hope and nothing more will prove your ruin. And we know what James says. He says if we break one, we break them all. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. I know. I know. We've heard it all before. Isn't that right? But there's a reason that we are still here on this earth. And the reason rests with us, beloved. And the sooner we come to ourselves as the prodigal did, the sooner we can get right with God and each other. The sooner we can finish the work so this great controversy can end and sin be destroyed forever. Doesn't that sound good? That sin will be destroyed forever? So we find that we're lawbreakers and what's the result of this? Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we have to pay a price for our lawlessness and it is a death decree. We owe our very lives for our sin debt. We have no way to pay that without forfeiting our future existence because it costs us our life. That's the debt we owe. But a friend, a dear friend, in the person of Jesus, he says... I'll assume your debt. I'll suffer death in your place. And I'll put it all to the credit of your personal account. And that offer constitutes the basis of our receiving forgiveness, friends, for our sins. We know John 3.16 and 17, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus has given us a way to have forgiveness for our sin. Jesus took our guilt upon Him. He died in our place so that we may have forgiveness. He assumed the harm so that we may not have to. Jesus has made a way to the Father, beloved, and we must avail ourselves of the opportunity. Or in our case, He died for nothing. So our sins now exposed and such love bestowed on our behalf, it should bring us to an open shame, really. Do you feel shame, beloved, or have you become deadened to it? I want you to ponder that question. Are you sorrowful for disobeying the law of God? Do you want to be forgiven and stop sinning? 
If yes, then you're experiencing a godly sorrow. You're experiencing repentance. So how are the guilt and condemnation and death sentence transferred from me and placed upon Jesus, who is our divine substitute? Well, real quickly, I'm going to go through three conditions for taking the step of obtaining forgiveness. The first condition is repentance. Repentance. Feeling a godly sorrow for the wrongs we have committed. And this repentance originates with God. It doesn't come from inside ourself, as Oprah Winfrey tries to tell billions of people. We have no good in us. The only good that may be in us comes from God. Acts 5 verse 31 says, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Christ, beloved, is the source of every right impulse. He is the only one that can implant the heart in the heart, enmity against sin. He's the only one that can change us. The second condition is confessing our sins with our own mouths to God. No one can do it for us, friends. We have to take responsibility for our own actions. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. John wrote in 1 John 1, 1.9, one of my most famous, uh, uh, not famous, <laughs> favorite promise. Well, it is famous, but uh, it's my favorite promises. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Take it home, friends. He is faithful. And He's just to forgive us our sins. He earned that by dying in our place. He's just to forgive us our sins. He doesn't stop there. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So not only will Jesus forgive us for our sins, He'll make us righteous. He'll change our habits of sin to habits of righteousness with the aid of the Holy Spirit. The third condition to having our sins forgiven is to make restitution for our wrongs. We make every effort to correct the things that we've done wrong, friends. Ezekiel 33 and verse 15 says, If the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed. Walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Of course, it's not possible to reach into the past and rectify every wrong, every lie, every dishonest act. In the first place, we can't even remember all the times we were guilty of those things. It would probably drive a person insane to feel responsibility for such an impossible demand. Nevertheless, Beloved, the Spirit probes our consciences and reminds us of the matters that can be made right. If something has been stolen, it has to be restored. If lies have been told which damage someone's reputation, we can apologize and tell the truth in order to remove any stigma on that person's character. If we did it publicly, it has to be done publicly. Sometimes, that sounds hard, friends, but sometimes prison might be a possible consequence of crimes of theft or robbery have been committed. But it is very important to arrange repayment whenever the possibility exists. In cases where restitution is not possible, well, the repentant one can safely trust the cleansing merit of Christ's blood to provide pardon 
and to provide restoration. Well, friends, we are in need of true primitive godliness like the apostles had if we are to hasten the second coming of Jesus. Isn't that true? And these conditions of forgiveness are the first step in achieving it. I want to refer to you. Psalms 51. Here David was in anguish of remorse over his sin with Bathsheba and he composed Psalm 51. It's an expression of his repentance when the message of reproof came to him from God. It's a prayer actually for forgiveness and for sanctification through the Holy Spirit. But I want to draw your particular attention to verse 10. For it speaks to that, well, what we really need in order to have that first love again. Psalms 51 verse 10. David says to the Lord, he says, Create in me a clean heart. I can't do it myself, God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. So you see, friends, God does not merely cleanse our heart. He creates in us a new heart. And beloved, can we not agree that we all need a new heart? Ezekiel 36 and 26, here's the promise. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Beloved, do you want a better life? One that is clean and pure and free of guilt? Do you want to do your first works for the Lord again? Or to do them for the first time? Jesus can give this life to you right now. Just return to Him. I'll leave you with the words that Paul uh, wrote to Titus. Titus 3. Beginning with verse 3. He said, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Let go yourself, beloved, and let God wash you. Let God renew a right spirit in you. And may we come to ourselves. May we arise. May we return to Him before it's too late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank You so much for Jesus. We thank You for the opportunity to be saved through Him. An opportunity that You hold out to us even though we have failed. Even though we are discouraged. Even though we have stepped off the path. You're still calling us to come home. You still give us promises that you will forgive us. And we ask forgiveness. Lord, give us a clean heart. Give us a new heart. Renew those right desires within us. So that we may, we may have peace. That we may have joy. That we may have all those blessings that come from thee. And share them with all. Please continue to be with us throughout this holy Sabbath day and forevermore till Jesus comes to take us home. We pray in His blessed name. Amen.